Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. Today's reading comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, to the church in Thyatira, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps your works until the end, to him I will give you authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And as when earth pottens and broken in pieces, even as I have myself received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're here in Thyatira, a tiny church that Jesus commended for its stalwartness. This city was a fraction of the size of the other churches, yet Jesus commended them just the same and extended them the same mighty promises. Jesus tells this little church to stand firm. And to make this point even more emphatic, John emphasizes the glowing bronze feet of Jesus. This is a reference back to Daniel's vision of the same bronze-legged Christ, but it also would have carried a strong meaning for the little church of Thyatira. This city existed for two reasons. First, it was a key trading post to supply Pergamum and Sardis. Second, it was a key fortified military outpost that would protect the road to Pergamum. Some commentators think its name derives from castle, and the current Turkish city here is Akisar, which means White Castle. Basically, Thyatira was known for making stuff and holding the boundaries safe. And that is precisely what Jesus commends them for in the church. They are experts at making the stuff that makes up the kingdom of God, love, faith, service, and patience. Roman guild culture of that era was a mixture of college fraternity, labor union, and religious cult. All guilds were dedicated to a specific craft and a specific deity, and a lot of the work of the guild was conducted during a monthly riotous feast that would end in an orgy where they would worship their chosen god. Little Thyatira 
had more guilds than any other city in ancient Asia. Woodworkers, metalworkers, makers of various dyes, tanners, potters, bakers, slave traders, and, and most especially bronze workers. John emphasizes Jesus' feet of bronze because bronze was the hardest metal in the ancient world. Bronze was a key export in the city of Thyatira, and its bronze makers guild was one of the most important guilds in the town. And as any bronze maker will tell you, it must be refined and refined until it has all its integrity and becomes one undiluted material. Feet made of bronze wouldn't be budged or bullied or badgered it, but they would stand firmly in their spot. Fun fact, the Hamburger Place White Castle was not named after that city in the video. <laughs> Just in case anyone was confused. Also, our bumper video, when you're in the back and it's dark and all you hear is the music, it's like, oh my gosh. It's very spooky back there. It's very Phantom of the Opera. Hey, my name is Christopher. I am the Connections Pastor here at Area 10, and I am super glad to be here. Thank you for being here, whether in person, at home, or in the future. And Really, I just want to say a quick thank you. Um, those videos, they don't just happen. We had uh, someone uh, research and write scripts and then filming and editing. So there's just been a lot of work that goes into those. So I just really wanted to express our thanks because that's, that's not nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get into lines like, and I killed her children, um, I thought we'd at least start out with a little bit of fun. <laughs> um, when Chris told me this is what I was preaching on, I was like, bro, what are you doing to me? Uh, but we will get there, and I promise we will unpack it in a way that hopefully everyone will have a better understanding and, and not be, uh, feel so clenched up maybe in their chest. So we're going to start off with a game of true or false, and how this is going to work is I'm just going to say true or false, and you can just answer with true or false. Answer out loud. You don't need to raise your hand or anything like that, and then I'll give you the answers as we go along, okay? True or false, Curious George has a tail. Right, okay. The answer is false. We expect him to have a tail. He's a monkey. If you don't know who Curious George is, well, okay. <laughs> True or false, the shoe brand Skechers has a T in it. Ooh, all of you knew that. You know who didn't? Me. And I own Skechers. You'd think I would, but no, that is, that is false. Okay, in the movie, A Field of Dreams... The line says, if you build it, they will come. Well, false, true, false, true. It's actually false. The line is, if you build it, he will come. That movie is all about daddy issues. So it's not about they, it's about he. Uh, Mr. Monopoly, true or false, wears a monocle? <laughs> true, false, true, false. He does not wear a monocle. Mr. Peanut, however, does. And I know... They, they look pretty similar. All right, my Star, Wars, my Star Wars friends, true or false, C-3PO has one silver leg. It is true. It's the bottom right part of his leg. Uh, in the movie Forrest Gump, Forrest says, Mama always says, life is like a box of chocolates. I hear my daughter yelling out every answer, which is not fair because she read my sermon. <laughs> false! It is actually false. This is one of the most misquoted lines in cinema. The line is actually, Mama always said, life was like a box of chocolates. And then finally, 
There is a K in Chick-fil-A. Isn't it weird that this one's really confusing? So there is actually a K. My entire life, I didn't think there was a K. I thought it was C-H-I-C apostrophe Phil apostrophe A. It's not. It's Chick-fil-A. So all of those examples are essentially of the Mandela effect. And the Mandela effect, you might have heard of. It's been... um, pretty popularized lately in, in, in uh, conversations. In a nutshell, the Mandela Effect describes a situation in which a person or a group of people have a false memory, and so they are trying to, to find the pieces to make sure they get the correct piece of information. Um, in research circles, they use this word that I think is just a great word. This is one of those million-dollar words that you could just pull out at parties. Confabulation. Oh, this is so good. Confabulation is this idea of false truth-telling or, or like a true lie. And the idea is um, that people aren't intentionally trying to mislead or deceive anyone. They honestly think what they're saying is true. They're, they're taking bits of information and then taking things that other people have said or bits of their memory and kind of coalescing all of those things until they get to this one spot that they believe to be the truth, that they believe to be fact. Now, we can see um, really the concepts of the Mandela effect all over culture. We can see it in pop culture. We see it in kind of world affairs, businesses, uh, scientific achievements, even our own histories. If someone knows you really well, I bet if you said, hey, is there a story that I tell that has changed the older I've gotten? They're going to tell you yes, because we all have those stories in our lives where the further and further we get away from when that moment happened or that origin of the actual truth, the further we get away, we, we stop remembering certain things or the, we just remember how we've told it. And we slowly start to morph the story until it's actually quite different than what the original source information was. That's the Mandela effect. In those circumstances, though, we're not intentionally lying. We just, we just are trying to figure out the best way we can the truth. We're using our own devices, our own memories, the information from the world and the people around us to fill in those gaps. Now, in this room, for the most part, um, there were some differences in a lot of the questions. If I gave you some time and some time to research, odds are you could have gotten near 100% you know, to go, okay, we all think this is the right answer. And I say near 100% because you always know there's that one person, right? And it doesn't matter what facts or truth you bring to them. It doesn't matter what visual aid you bring. They're just going to dig in their heels and go, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You, you're wrong. Like we all know that person. If you don't know that person... You should... You should, you should check some things in your heart, is all I'm saying. I'm just saying. We know those people. But overall, in this room, we, we generally would have tried to coalesce around what was factual. The problem is, though, nowadays, we don't like to coalesce around facts. Because facts don't hold that much meaning anymore. If I have facts, then someone else has different kinds of facts, and they may see contradictory, and I don't want to do the work to figure out what is true and what's not, or where there's alternate facts. True, truth is not objective anymore. It's subjective. What's true for you isn't necessarily true for me, and so we don't know how to coalesce around facts. We don't know how to coalesce around truth. Instead, we like to really, really just find unity around opinion. 
opinion that makes us feel something, that makes us feel like we're right, that makes us feel like what we're saying is true. We're taking bits and pieces and we hear the opinions and we go, no, I think that's what's true. So that's what's going to, that's what's going to influence me. I want to be really clear up front on how this message is framed. What you allow yourself to be influenced by will either lead to your destruction or your salvation. There's not really a middle ground. And I really wish there were. It would make so many things in life a lot easier. But, but there's not. There's, there's not a middle ground. And that difficult fact is tough for us to believe. And so we do the thing that comes most naturally to us. We don't. We don't believe. We, we undermine. Or we try and take bits and pieces so it just seems more palatable to us. And allows us to keep living the way that we want to live. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been digging into these letters that we find in the book of Revelation. And in each of these letters, we're really getting to see pictures of the heart of God in different ways. But we are also being presented with some uncomfortable and challenging facts. As you saw in the video today, we're going to be talking about the church in Thyatira. Um, I have heard that name said 14 different ways. So I'm just going to say Thyatira for today just to make it consistent as much as I can. And so I'm going to ask you if you have your Bible or a Bible app to turn in it or open it up to Revelation chapter 2, and we are going to begin at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love and faith and service and, service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. As is the case with all the other letters, this first sentence is giving a picture of an attribute of Christ, is giving an attribute um, to the character of God, but also pointing us to kind of what the overall point of this letter is. And what I want us to rest in just for a few minutes before we get to some of the more challenging language is what the church is doing right. Because sometimes it's really easy, I think nowadays especially, to just point out everything that's wrong and how we're screwing up and how we're messing up as individuals or as, as communities. And so I just want us to take a moment to rest in this. This list of love, faith, service, and endurance is not a, meaningful, a meaningless list. In fact, I would say it is the most foundational and bedrock attributes that those who call themselves Christians are called to. These are the things that should be the bread and butter of the church, the things that the church should be known for. Because all of these things are simultaneously Christ-focused and others-focused. It's not about us, it's about Christ, and it's about how we love well and serve well and develop our faith in the world around us. And what we see, oftentimes, and what we see in the New Testament, what we see throughout church history, what we see now today, is individuals and churches that will really pick and choose what attributes they want to lean into which ones are worthy of their time. The Christian faith, being a disciple of Christ, is not a buffet. It's not a pick what you like and leave what you don't like. We're called to develop these things and lean into these things and be consistent with these things. Love, arguably the most central Christian command, to lead with love, to love well, to love with intention the people cro that cross our path or that are in our lives, not cutting bait 
when things get tough or challenging or when our feelings get hurt, but a dedicated commitment to care for others even when you might disagree, even when you might not believe the same thing, even when it's uncomfortable or inconvenient, even when it might require sacrifice, even if it means that those people hate you, we're still called to love. That is the picture of love that we see in Scripture. That is the idea of love that this church of Thyatira is, is holding too true, which makes sense because that's the very picture of love that we see Jesus demonstrate for us. Faith. Not this blind trust that if you believe in God, everything's going to work out the way that you want it to. That if you say you're a Christian, that you're going to have all the money in the world, you're never going to have any problems, that, that's, not, that's not faith. The faith we see in Scripture, the faith that we see in the Church of Thyatira is a trust in God even when things don't go your way. Even when things don't make sense. A belief that the mission and purpose that God has called you to is worthwhile and worth committing to. It's having confidence in his truth and his promises of grace and forgiveness and the promise of a new heaven and a new earth and then service. This idea of actively being a good steward with everything you've been blessed with, whether you've been blessed with much or little, it doesn't matter. But utilizing your time, your gifts, your money, the things you own to be a blessing to the world around you, to meet the needs that exist around you. To give voice to the voiceless to actually speak truth of biblical justice, not what the world or what the culture continues to tell us is justice, but what is actual biblical justice and biblical reconciliation, to care for the widowed and orphaned, the marginalized and the forgotten or ignored, not because you have to, not because it makes you feel good, not because you might get more likes or followers on TikTok or Twitter or Instagram, because Christ has called you to. And because we get to. And then finally, endurance. Perseverance to keep going, to keep committing to love, faith, and service, even though sometimes it could be daunting. These bedrock things, the church of Thyatira was doing right. And I don't want that to be lost. Because those things matter. And Jesus applauds the fact that they're doing these things. And not just that they're doing these things, but that they're growing in all of these things. That when they first came to Christ, they were, they were digging into those things well, but they're doing even better now. It speaks to their maturity and endurance and their commitment to being a disciple of Christ. But all of us know, even the most well-meaning people in this world can really botch things up. Even those that have a strong foundation of any kind of faith can mess things up because of a decision or a series of decisions or the things that we simply turn a blind eye to. Revelation 2.20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, more than likely, this woman's name was not actually Jezebel. Um, but using that name Jezebel would have immediately help the reader in that time understand, oh, this is really bad. 
Because Jezebel in Israel's history is in, in, in Israel's history is one of the most evil and wicked individuals in all of their lineage. If you hear the name Jezebel, you know you're not supposed to do that. Even today, right? Like we may not always understand why, but you don't like you're not walking down the street and go, "Oh, hi, I'm Topher. Oh, hi, I'm Jezebel." And it's like no one names their child Jezebel, and if you do, you're mean. It's like naming your kid Judas. Like, just don't do it. You may not understand the full implications, but come on, you know there's just, like, there are some names that carry a super negative connotation. And this is no different for them. They're going to hear this name Jezebel, and immediately they're going to go, uh-oh, this, this, this can't be this can't be good. This can't be right. And you can read more about her story in 1 Kings in the Old Testament. We don't have a ton of time to, to dig into that today. We know from the text that she was a part of the church, meaning she wasn't someone of a different religion or no religion at all that was just out there in culture, that she was in the church, that she was a part of the church. And it doesn't take much research into the original language or context to find that really what the, the church was doing, even though they were doing all these great and wonderful foundational things, is that they were turning a blind eye to what she was teaching as God's truth and what she was teaching of what was good and what was okay. What we see here is, is in these few verses is that in their commitment to love and faith, and service, and endurance, they just made some bad decisions. They lost good judgment, and they began to tolerate things that are not just contrary to the truth of God, but completely contrary to how God has called his church to exist. What you allow yourself to be influenced by will either lead to your destruction or your salvation, and it doesn't take much for the things that we tolerate to become the things that influence us the most. The small little church in Thyatira was turning a blind eye to the things that they were tolerating. It was taking the truth of God and making this unholy union with the lies of Satan. It's honestly just a really early example of gaslighting, of taking a kernel of truth, and wrapping it around a tangle of lies and distortions until no one can tell that it's lies and distortions anymore. We just think it's the truth. A couple of weeks ago when we kicked off this series, Chris shared a quote by G.K. Chesterton that I want to bring back today because I, I just there's something about this quote. He says, Tolerance is the virtue of men who don't believe anything. And I want to be real honest. When Chris shared this message with me, and I read that, I had a wall immediately go up. And I'm like, dude, no, that's not right. Tolerance is a good thing. Like, everything's, like, it's just, like, I don't know. And I had to dismantle this wall to examine the truth of the statement. And as I prayed and, and, and intentionally kind of tried to, to strip away the emotion that it kicked up in me, what I found was really how true this statement really is. Tolerance is that thing that we get to say we have because we don't have a foundation in anything. We get to put up with a lot of different stuff and turn a blind eye to a lot of different stuff because we don't actually believe in anything. If we don't stand for anything, if we don't have a firm foundation in anything, then we're no wonder we get swept away by everything, by every loud voice 
by every shiny trinket, by every distraction. Because we've moved so far away from the original source, we're just constantly trying to piece together what the truth is. I I think one of the biggest challenges for us that we don't always realize is that we equate love and grace as being the same thing as tolerance. And they're not the same thing. It's love and grace, not tolerance, that allow people who are different or have different beliefs to coexist with one another and have meaningful relationships with one another. It's grace and love, not tolerance, that allows us to offer forgiveness and for us to seek forgiveness. It's love and grace, not tolerance, that makes us aware of what is right and what is wrong. It doesn't ignore it. It also doesn't beat people over the head with it. Instead, it engages those situations thoughtfully and prayerfully the same way Christ would. Grace and love, which we all are in need of, is the manifestation of God's spirit living through us. Not tolerance. God's not asking us to turn a blind eye to the things that are happening in our lives, that are leading our lives, that are influencing our lives. And I get that tolerance, especially in culture, but even in the church, it sounds great. But when you dig just a little deeper, it doesn't take much to realize how much tolerance distorts the truth. It misrepresents the truth. It begins to take certain things that we thought were true and then we've, we lean and start to believe that they themselves have become lies. It gives cause and we justify bad decisions and unhealthy living. It creates a mechanism for us to be excuse-making machines that have no foundation of truth any longer, but instead just an ever-shifting sense of identity that is really based on the opinion of others that we've latched onto and is pretty far removed from Jesus. In the church, and to an extent outside of the church, what you tolerate ends up being the thing that influences you most. Think about it. If you're a business owner, and you tolerate someone being late and someone being tardy, that is going to affect your bottom line. It's going to affect customer service. It's going to expect uh, staff morale. It's going to affect leadership development. I manage three different retail stores. Believe me, I know that to be true. If you tolerate pornography in your life, it is going to distort the truth of men and women and sex. If you, dis- if you tolerate screens in such a way that you allow that to be your primary influence in your life, that is the lens in which you will see the wor- world, whether it's social media, news, TV shows, movies. It doesn't matter if there are no limits. If that's what we're tolerating... That is what is going to become the most influential thing. Revelation 2.21, I give her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her into, onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your work. The first line is really important, and I don't want us to miss this. We could see the good and we miss the line because we know the bad is coming. But this one sentence, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual, sexual immorality, gives a picture of God's heart. 
It is a picture of grace that we are offered. And understand for the original readers, the idea that God would even be extending grace to someone who is referred to as Jezebel would have been mind-blowing. It is the reality that when we think to ourselves, I'm too far gone, God could never love me. Or when we see someone else and we go, they're too far gone, God could never love them. God is saying, no, it doesn't doesn't matter how far gone you think you are. It doesn't matter how far other people think you are. It doesn't matter how far you think people are. My grace is sufficient and I am going to offer it to you. You just have to turn to me. So often we don't. And then we get mad. And we go, God, how could you? It's really easy to read or hear bits of scripture and think God isn't good. He isn't loving. He isn't just. He isn't graceful. He isn't merciful. He's angry. And he's judgmental. And he's jealous. Yes. Yes. He is all of those things. But he is most certainly just. He is most certainly loving. He is most certainly gracious and good and merciful. We're just often too busy to notice it. I love the way Jen Wilkin says it. She says, the fact that you are currently Inhaling and exhaling at this very moment means that you are a recipient of mercy. It's, it's never comfortable or easy to hear that sin equals a death, that sin equals destruction. Those ideas are never going to be things that land well. They're never going to be easy to talk about, whether it's in a sermon or in a conversation or in a small group study or when we're by ourselves praying. Those, those things are never going to land well on us. But the reality is, it is that judgment, it is that reality that sin leads to destruction, that we have a Savior. That even at our worst, and those darkest parts of our soul that we convince ourselves disqualify us from the love of God, God is saying, no. You are worthy. And my grace is sufficient. And I do love you. You just need to turn to me. We're all old enough in this room to know that there are consequences to our choices and our actions. Some that affect only us, some that affect everyone around us. What we see in verses 22 and 23 are the consequences of sin, and there's not a pretty way to paint that. It's the consequences of sin that have been unrepented for, and I want to remind us, or maybe for the first time, tell you what repentance is. Repentance is literally turning away from It's recognizing our sin. It's owning our sin, confessing our sin, turning away from that sin, that action, that belief, and turning toward God, towards 
Christ, focusing our hearts, minds, and soul on Christ and his truth. In verses 22 and 23, what we see instead of repentance is the consequences of sin, is the consequences of our own arrogance, of our own doubts, is the consequences of how easy it is for all of us to dig in our heels regardless of the truth that is presented to us and go, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. And I want to be really clear with with two specific things. One, this verse is not actually talking about striking small children dead. I know that is one of those lines that could be like, uh, what? That's That's not what it's talking about. The context of this is really about talking about this person, Jezebel's followers. It's no different than when you read in the Old Testament, you see the children of Israel. In the New Testament, you see the term children of God. It's talking about those that have chosen by their own volition to follow this person and their teaching, okay? And what we see is their unwillingness to repent and, and, and the, the realities of sin. Um, the second is, is very different and very easily missed. It's not the church who is doling out the consequences of sin. And I point that out because there are certainly have been people in history and there are certainly people today who think that that's their job. That their job as a disciple of Christ, as a Christian, is to dole out the consequences of sin. And I assure you, It is not. That is not your job. And to be very blunt, the ones that think that that is your job, the ones that you think that your job is to dole out the consequences of sin to the world around you, you are no different than Jezebel. All you're doing is twisting and distorting God's truth and elevating yourself into a position of importance that really you don't belong in. Jesus points out the good stuff this church is doing. He points out what they're tolerating and turning a blind eye to and the natural consequences that come with that. He's reminding them of the grace that is offered to everyone. And then he he says this, and he gives us this reminder that we can't hide from God because he knows our hearts, he knows our minds, he knows our motivations. And that's an important reminder for us because I think sometimes we think, oh, we can trick God. We can trick God with our relationship. We can trick God on whether or not we've actually repented and are are moving towards him. I don't know if you've ever been around a kid that's apologized. It does not take much to realize if they're lying or not. God is reminding of of us for us because the way in which we live, in which we chase after Christ, speaks to what we actually believe. Revelation 2.24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you, will, what you have until I come. Hold fast. Be consistent. Continue to chase after Christ. Continue to love well. Continue to grow your faith. Continue to meet the needs of the people 
around you and the reward will be Christ himself, the morning star and the reality of the promise that he gave us of a new heaven and a new earth. Now, a closer examination of this text, it's really easy to see this and go, oh, they say Satan, so she was a Satan worshiper. She wasn't a Satan worshiper. That's the kicker. She worshiped God. She worked to worship Christ, but over time, she made concessions of what that looks like. She moved further and further away from the source and began to make her own thing, taking different beliefs and different beliefs here and different beliefs there until it became such a pluralistic mess of God's truth that it seemed like truth, but really ultimately led to her destruction. So why does any of this matter? Why does it matter in 21st century America? I think the biggest reason is that false prophets and false teachers still exist. And honestly, I just, I think we're pretty unaware. Most of us, myself included, are really good at parroting back information of amplifying a message that seems good, that feels good, that seems right, and we think is probably of Jesus. And oftentimes what we've done is that we've, we've put a layer of truth over a whole ball of lies, and we ourselves have become false teachers, and we don't even realize it. We are influenced in such subtle ways, and at times so gradually that we don't even... We don't even realize it. And what we think is true is just this pile of concessions that is leading to our destruction. A well-known pastor, Ephraim Smith, said this, Christ, the kingdom, and scripture ought to inform how I practically live in this world. Instead, my concern for the church right now is that the ideologies, systems, and institutions of this world are holding God's people captive. They are informing how we read the Bible, how we see Jesus, and what our expectations of the church are. There needs to be humble acknowledgement and repentance. Outside influences have shaped the allegiance of God's people more than the kingdom of God or the authentic Jesus has. And I don't think it takes that much work to see how true that is. Now, influence can be positive or negative. It could open us up to new perspectives, or it can make us immovable in our opinions. It can teach us empathy and sympathy, or it can reinforce anger and ignorance. Those influences can draw us closer to the truth of Christ, or they can create something that we call Christianity, but is really a loose gathering of moralists that are dictated more by culture, a political party, or a business. It's easy, more easy than I think anybody wants to admit, of how much we are influenced by the things around us. The people we hang out with, the books we read, the podcasts we listen to, the social media accounts we follow, the news you follow, the political party of your choice, all of those things are more are constantly exerting influence on your life and we are allowing it to happen with very little discernment. We are tolerating things that sound good, that we think and feel might be right or of Jesus in reality are a distortion of God's truth. And we don't know the difference. 
Because we don't even know what God's truth is. Because we've just continued to move so far away. And God's truth isn't the most influential thing in our life. Everything else is. The reason it matters is that today in 21st century America, it's honestly becoming increasingly rare for churches to hold close to Jesus. To hold close to Scripture and the realities of God and the Holy Spirit instead We have churches that will boycott anything and everything under the banner of Jesus, but are just filled with complete and utter hate and judgment for the world around them. We have churches that will say scripture is all relative, that it doesn't matter. It's a historical piece. How you live doesn't matter. Instead, we have churches that are tolerant and truly love deeply and serve their community so well but truth is nowhere to be found. Instead, we have churches that are simply extensions of our culture, of our businesses, of our organizations, of our political systems, and they look nothing like God's truth. It all starts with what we allow to be influenced by the most. (coughs) Hear me, I'm not saying become a hermit. I'm not saying today after church, Go get your last sandwich, lock yourself in a dark room with a candle and read your Bible until Jesus comes back. I'm not saying take yourself away from the relationships that you're in. I'm not saying like, oh, don't read that book. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is hold close to the word of God. I'm saying make that the most important thing. I'm saying chase after Jesus instead of whatever the new hotness might be in our culture. I'm saying to pray and fast and study and listen. I'm saying, like the church in Thyatira, to love well, to serve, to develop our faith, to endure, but be aware what you are tolerating. Be aware of the things that you are influencing you the most because we live in a world of lies and half-truths. I love the way Beth Moore says it. We're going to have to let the truth scream louder to our souls than the lies that have infected us. But we have to address our own ignorance first. Jen Wilkin, who if you didn't notice, I'm a huge fan of, um, she says, both the false teacher and the secular humanist rely on biblical ignorance for their message to take root. And the modern church has proven fertile ground for those messages. Because we don't know our Bibles, we crumble at the most basic challenges to our worldview. Look, you don't need to be a professor of theology or know Hebrew or Greek to be a student of Scripture, but you do need to actually read Scripture. You need to be willing to go to the source, to be reminded of the ultimate truth, to be brave enough to ask questions that you may not like the answer to, or to ask questions that you may never get an answer at all. Our mission at Area 10 has been and will continue to be to make disciples, to do our very best as imperfect people to challenge one another to pick up our cross and follow Christ every day, to seek the face of God. We are committed to providing space for people to explore their faith and relationship with God regardless of what baggage you have, regardless of what you're bringing to the table. We are committed to being a safe place for healing and hope to flourish. We are dedicated to loving beyond reason, to developing 
our faith, to serving the world around us, but please understand this. We are also committed to living inside the guardrails that God has laid out for us. And all of that begins with an unwavering commitment to the study of Scripture and living out our lives the way Christ has called us. To be a disciple is to imitate the one before us. To be a disciple is to live the way God has intended, and we can't imitate a God whose habits, ideals, passions, and directions we've never learned. But it's sure easy to say that we do. So what influences you? What influences you the most? What are you allowing, whether you realize it or not, to control your future? What you allow yourself to be influenced by will either lead you to your destruction or your salvation. We're going to come to a time of communion right now. And we do this every week at Area 10 intentionally because we don't ever want to forget the grace that is offered to us, regardless of how far off we may feel. So in a, in a moment, I'm going to pray, and hopefully you were able to grab communion on your way in, and the band is going to lead us in a song. But in this moment of prayer, in this moment of communion, what I ask you to do is I really ask you to search your heart. As you focus on the sacrifice of Christ and his resurrection over death, giving us hope, search your heart and ask the questions. Ask the tough questions. What are you allowing yourself to be influenced by? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. I am grateful that it gives hope and encouragement and strength. God, I am also grateful that it gives direction. And it gives rebuke. And even though sometimes it is challenging to hear or challenging to accept, I trust that your Holy Spirit is moving in this space. Here at the bird, in people's homes, and in the future. God, I pray for A10. God, that we would be committed to you. That you would be the main thing. And God, as we are in this space now, getting ready to partake of the bread and juice representing your body and blood, may we never forget the grace that is continually offered to us and the reality that we simply need to turn to you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.